0: I spoke. The first time, I think, in public, I spoke about Israel. And immediately, I was pigeonholed, no longer as the right-wing, extreme right-wing, fascist, Nazi renegade from The Guardian, but as a Jew, and as a warmongering right-wing Jew. I'd been to Israel twice to see my daughter. Didn't like it.
1: Hello and welcome to Confessions. I'm Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm talking to interesting and well-known guests to try and find out what it is that makes them tick. I'm going to try and drill down into their core beliefs to understand who they are and what they're on about. Bearing her soul to me this morning in the stall is Melanie Phillips, social commentator, scourge of all things liberal and floppy and... uh, and, and uh, is that the right way of putting it? Oh, well, that's one way of putting it, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, columnist for the uh, for the Times, Melanie, welcome, welcome to uh, um, Confessions.
0: Thank you, Giles. I'm very honoured to be here, and I do hope you're going to explain to me how I tick. <laughs> well, that's what we want to know. That's what we're trying to find out.
1: <laughs> um, Melanie, it's just. You've been on such a fascinating journey. Um, the whole sort of trajectory of your um, thought has, you Ooh. know, has been has been fascinating. But perhaps we could just start by talking about where it all starts for you, where where it all began, and something about your parents and something about where okay. your background and okay. you know.
0: Well. I was brought up in what was, at the time, a fairly typical British-Jewish family. It was lower middle class. My father sold ladies' dresses from a van. Uh, My mother ran um, a children's clothes shop. They lived in the same rented flat broadly until they died. They never had any assets. They died with virtually nothing. Uh, Money was not their thing, uh, but they invested everything in me, their only child. They sent me uh, through private education and I eventually read English literature at Oxford, and it was, as I say, a typical British Jewish family of the time. Uh, my family belonged to an Orthodox synagogue, um, but they were what's called... In West London? In West London, in Hammersmith. There was then a thriving Jewish community in West London. That all moved to North West London, except for my parents, who stayed stuck in Hammersmith. And it was fairly typical of the time. My parents um, were kosher at home and out. But they were what's called three times a year Jews. They went on the high holy days, the two days of Rosh Hashanah uh, and Yom Kippur, the three uh, biggest uh, festivals of the of, of the year. And I was brought up virtually knowing nothing else. My father was not one of these autodidacts one reads about. You know, he came from nothing. He came from extreme poverty, which he did. But he had the he had the uh, the ability to pull himself out by his bootstraps and educate himself later. He wasn't like that. He didn't educate himself, and he wasn't Jewishly educated. So, I was brought up going to uh, uh English uh, was the
1: the language that that was spoken as Eng- no they, my
0: both my parents were born in britain uh, my father's parents were polish uh, immigrants who spoke well my, my 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 paternal grandfather died when I was very small, but my paternal grandmother spoke virtually no english um, she spoke mainly yiddish my mother's parents had been born in Britain, so she was a kind of Half a degree of half a degree of social class above my father uh, in the far as these things matter. And yeah, that was my background. And it would have been unthinkable, unthinkable uh, for my parents and their immediate family circle uh, to have voted anything other than Labour ever.
1: Phillips is a, it sounds like one of those names that was probably anglicized along the way. Well the
0: family mythology is that when my paternal grandfather came off the boat uh, at the port of London in uh, uh, whenever it was the turn of the 20th century uh, from his village in Poland, he gave his name which according to the family mythology was something like Patinsky and they said right Phillips <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Phillips is what we were stuck with. <laughs> <laughs> and did you
1: did you go on high days and holidays? And was that a part of? I went on uh, high days
0: and holidays. Yes, I stuck pretty faithfully to uh, you know the pattern that my parents had set, uh, even when I grew up. But well, that's another story. I stuck very pretty faithfully to the pattern my parents had set in all kinds of ways, which weren't necessarily altogether healthy.
1: Oh, go on then. That, that I sounds... was too
0: too much tied to my mother in particular. Um, I didn't really uh, understand that neither she nor I knew where the one stopped and the other started and that builds in for major problems later in life which duly uh, surfaced and I spent much of my life trying to deal with it but hey uh, I don't play the victim so I prefer not to go there too much. Right,
1: right, right, right. <coughs> there was that sort of uh, prioritisation of education which is mm-hmm. quite typical in the sort of background that you Very much that so. you describe and you know throw all your resources or as much as you can at your children, to to help them do well. And then you went on to university to do...
0: I read English literature. Not a
1: doctor or a lawyer. Uh,
0: Not a doctor or a lawyer. I decided that the kind of people who were involved in university journalism and or university politics were the scum of the earth. They were (laughs) appalling careerist creeps and I would have nothing whatsoever to do with them. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so um, now that sounds like the Melanie Phillips of today, <laughs> having those, those oh, opinions. Like were you the, were you like that then? Yeah,
0: I was like that then. Um, I thought they were absolutely dreadful. And when I came to the, you know, came to decide what I was going to do with the rest of my life, I really didn't know. I just didn't know where I was in the world. I didn't really think that I had read the right subject to university. I should probably have read history and learned a great deal more about the way the world works. <clears throat> but it was too late then. And I wasn't really, you know, English literature equips you for everything and nothing. And so I applied to all kinds of things, including, you know, a higher degree, uh, teacher training. I, I can't remember what I applied for on the basis that I would just leave it to fate to decide what... Would, it would throw my way and I applied for the hell of it for what was then the only way to get into journalism which was a local paper training scheme it was then run by the Thomson organization which then uh, it owned the times at that time but it also owned a chain of local papers which used as training papers and to the absolute astonishment of me and everybody else I got a place and I remember thinking at the time I remember thinking my goodness these places are fought for by the kind of creeps who have spent their entire <laughs> university careers doggedly editing Charwell and all that sort of stuff in order to get one of these places. And here it's fallen into my lap. And I remember thinking, I am the wrong person for this. I am temperamentally not cut out to be a journalist because I'm the kind of person who just does not put herself about. I was extremely shy and very, very unsure of myself and I thought, I can't turn it down.
1: What was the What was the paper?
0: It was called The Evening Echo at Hemel Hempstead, a great paper which now, unfortunately, is no more. But it taught me everything I needed to know. It had the classic local paper news editor who basically, you know, with every word prefaced by an asterisked word, <laughs> um, basically said, you know, why have I been sent another university graduate who knows absolutely nothing? And I remember being sent out to, you know, to, to cover the local courts and sitting through these Dire, tedious, trivial, petty court cases and coming back and writing up my dire, trivial and petty court case. And the news editor standing over my shoulder and shouting at me... Get the sex in the headline! (laughs) And I thought, why on earth am I putting myself through this? And I've thought that for the last several decades, quite frankly. (laughs) Did you come from
1: quite a protected background in terms of things like sex and...
0: T- completely protected. Right, right, I mean, right. overprotected in every possible regard. So shy,
1: overprotected, and suddenly you're on the Hemel Hempstead, whatever it is, going out and, and and writing these stories, the editor wanting you to do sex, yeah. as much sex and violence as
0: possible. Yeah, yeah. It was not exactly a meeting of minds. So I couldn't get away from there fast enough. But it wasn't...
1: But, I mean, you won Young
0: Journalist I of did. the Year. For, on that paper. <laughs> on that paper. Yes. Well, in fact, I'd left it by then. Um, my my attempts to get into Fleet Street uh, met with, you know, rude remarks like, go away, who are you? And so I ended up on a magazine called New Society, uh, which was an amazing sui generis magazine. It was a kind of bridge between academia and journalism. It consisted of academics who wanted to be journalists and journalists who wanted to be academics. Okay. And it was like the higher reaches of journalistic social policy. And it was dead serious. But it was in London. And they said, yes we can give you a job. So I went there for a year and virtually as soon as I got there, I won a British Press Award. In fact, it wasn't called the British Press Awards then, it was a precursor, Young Journalist of the Year for my work uh, as a health service reporter, which I then was, on the evening echo at Hemel Hempstead. Um, And on the basis of that... Was there a great story
1: that you broke, the basis of which, you know...
0: Well, I did a series in which I kind of you know, sort of went undercover. I wore a white coat, I think, I can't remember. (laughs) And I sort of smuggled myself into hospital and reported on the appalling and dire conditions in health service hospitals. It's actually rather good. But, you know, it was real journalism. Hey, I went and found stuff that nobody else was writing. And, you know, that's what journalism actually is. And I won this award, much to my astonishment. And then, equipped with this award, I came to the notice of The Great and Good Guardian, um, so, you know, a, a series Who of, employed
1: you at The Guardian?
0: Well, it was Peter Preston, who was a legendary editor. Uh, he died fairly recently and we only then knew the suffering he endured as a polio victim. He was always in pain and I think it formed his personality. His personality was a little strange and he was uh, famous for not looking at anybody when he spoke to them and for speaking in such an oblique manner that nobody knew what he meant, and that's the way he controlled everybody. But I knew that much later. What I found out when I was called by him for interview, and I carefully prepared, I mean, you know, this was The Great Guardian, I I thought of every possible question I could be asked. Why do you want to be a journalist at all? Why do you want to be a journalist on The Guardian? What is it that interests you particularly about social policy? What's your view about the health service? I prepared everything. And I turned up, and there was Peter... Uh, scrunched in his usual way over his desk and he didn't look at me throughout he looked at the wall behind me so I was never quite sure I was turning around who's, who's he talking to and he simply said I'm just sorry that I can't offer you a specialist position and that was it and I left and I said to my husband I don't know whether I've got a job or not and nothing happened, and I had no idea whether I had been offered a job or not until I got a letter from another operative at The Guardian saying, on such and such a day, please turn up and you come to this entrance. And I said, oh, so I have got a job. That's how I was employed at The Guardian. I was never actually employed. I just kind of <laughs> got there by osmosis. My story is almost identical to really? that.
1: Really? <laughs> <laughs> OK. I, um, and, and when you turn up there, you're still bringing with you the Melanie Phillips with Labour, Mum and Dad, and mm. your Jewish background, all of that. That's, oh, oh
0: I, was that's... In, I was in ideological <coughs> heaven because The Guardian, for me, was the acme of not just journalistic excellence, which indeed it was, but of ideological wonderfulness. These were people, in my view, with whom uh, I you know, shared entirely a worldview and outlook on life. We all marched under the same banner as I thought, of um, concern for the most vulnerable in society, a desire to stand up against abuses of power wherever they should be, a desire to make the world a better place, a desire to stand up for truth against lies, um, and to uphold the best values of journalism in accordance with all those things. Um, and I thought they were all on the same page as me at that time, and so I was in absolute seventh heaven. And those are your core. Those are your core values. They were and... my core values. They remain my core values. Yeah.
1: You're 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 not a self doubter, are you?
0: Oh, I am, but not over that. Okay, but not over that. Okay, not over that.
1: You're a self doubter over how you just about everything else.
0: (laughs) 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 About what it all means, about how you interpret this, about whether I've got it right, about whether I've got people right, whether I've got my general position right, whether whether my general position accords with my core principles, or whether the people saying that they don't accord with my core principles are right. Who's right? That's what I'm always wrestling with and and that
1: wrestling uh famously took a sort of you know there's a dramatic turn at the guardian when you well, you as it were fall out with with the sort of the world view as it were there were
0: um, several um dramatic turnets as it were right uh on 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 route there was a uh, you know a, a sort of blip in 1982 which we can go into if you, if you want um you can find it in my memoir guardian angel oh um, <laughs> quick advert quick advert see she's
1: plugging uh, a book <laughs>
0: um, but um my my real falling out um i mean i if you go back to my work on new society you can find their evidence of heresy i remember very clearly a couple of incidents where i went down to brixton this would have been in 1978 I went down to Brixton to look at, I don't know, something to do with race uproar. And I remember writing something to the effect of, well, you know, the community itself has got to really get its own act together about its young people. And everyone going, what? And thinking, oh, what have I said? Have I said something wrong? And I also said something about um, psychiatric hospitals. I said, psychiatric hospitals are awful, but community care, it's a recipe for neglect. And everybody went, oh! You can't say that. And I thought, what? So there were signs then that I was sort of going against the, you know, the on-dee, against the, the received wisdom. But basically I kept with the received wisdom, but with increasing doubts. Now I look back, I can see... Would you call
1: yourself a socialist in those times? No,
0: I would never call myself an ist. I only called myself a journalist um, and a Jew. Uh, and that's really what I remain. I don't like ideologies. But I assumed that I was a kind of liberal in the traditional sense. Tolerance uh, a desire for freedom, a uh, concern for bettering the lot of me and my fellow men, and so on and so forth. Um, but um, I didn't sign up with socialism. I didn't sign up with leftism, but I was considered to be a leftist. And everybody called themselves left liberals or the liberal left. And so I assumed that the two were synonymous. And so I thought that, you know, we all basically shared the same, same worldview. And that really didn't come apart until 1987. Until 1984, I was a writing journalist. I was, first of all, um, a reporter. Then I was the paper's social services correspondent. And then I was an editorial writer, a leader writer. Um, And then I became the paper's news editor for three years. That was not a happy experience. We can go into that if you want. And then I, after that, in 1987, I became a columnist. And the second column I wrote, I came to grief. Uh, The first column was stupendously tedious. It was about the law. And everybody went yawn, yawn. And I was taken aside by a senior operative at The Guardian who said, you're now an op-ed columnist. That means we want to know what you think. We don't want to know all this sort of on the one hand, on the other. You don't have to do that anymore. We I want can't to,
1: imagine we want to know a Melanie Phillips on the one hand and on the other column. Oh, but
0: that's how I was. That's how absolutely I was. And that's how I still am, to a large extent. Except, except that I do have strong views. But I'd always been taught you put those views to one side as a journalist. So now I was being told, no, no, no. As a columnist, we want to know what you think, what really gets you going. And this operative said to me, I know what gets you going. It's education. I had very young children at the time. I couldn't find an appropriate nursery school for them. And I had obviously said to him, something's going very badly wrong here. He said, write about that. That's what gets you going. So I thought, oh, OK, fine. So I wrote about that. I wrote a column saying, it's not all Mrs. Thatcher's fault. Something is going badly wrong with education because it's going badly wrong with the teaching profession. And the world then fell in on me overnight. And from that, everything then proceeded. I went from issue to issue to issue. And I then became a kind of exile within The Guardian. People stopped talking to me. There were no more little uh, cosy little chats over the tea trolley. There were no more, whatever the precursor email was, we had it, uh, there were no more little sort of uh, gossipy things coming in on my computer. I was no longer invited to uh, fashionable soirees and dinners in Islington, etc., etc. et, cetera,
1: et cetera. But you don't think you changed at I all? I did change.
0: I ah. changed very dramatically in that I came to believe that the people I'd thought were on my side were on the other side, um, and, that the peop- and that I had I'd misinterpreted a whole load of stuff. But the core principles, standing up for the vulnerable against the oppressor, standing up for truth against lies, justice against injustice, victim against victimizer, I remained true to that and I remain true to that is my interpretation of how those things played out. And and,
1: and presumably you cast... Who yes. who are in those uh, those categories in a different way? Now. Exactly,
0: and I found myself increasingly <coughs> because I was taking these positions first on education, then on family breakdown, then on multiculturalism, then on Islamism, and then on climate change. It wasn't called climate change then; it was called man-made global warming. But on all these things, over many years, um, I became I, I I entered into more and more circles of hell. Basically, I became ever more demonized, and as that happened, I was embraced by people who had previously been. Uh, people who I had assumed were on the side of utter selfishness, self-centeredness, horribleness, uh, lack of conscience, i.e. the right. And I realised that they weren't the right, that they were a diverse set of people. They were largely unideological. Some of them were ideological. Some of them were gung-ho for market forces. And in my view, market forces were what was tearing the left apart. The left was being torn apart by extreme individualism in the social sphere social, uh, personal and social. And the right was going down this path of extreme individualism in the economic sphere. But in my view, it was all the same thing. It was individualism gone mad and without reference to an overarching set of uh, basic values which constrain individualism.
1: And which are located within a community.
0: Exactly. And... I found myself by default being ushered onto platforms, as it were, virtual and real, by people who were considered to be the right. And I realised a number of things, and it was a very, very uncomfortable process. I realised, first of all, they weren't a homogeneous group at all. Secondly, they shouldn't be demonised because they were activated in many respects by conscience and by a desire for the betterment of humanity. They just had a different view about how that should be achieved. And thirdly, the most unsettling thing was that they embraced me, but I didn't embrace them because they weren't really coming at it from my point of view at all. When I say that they were people of conscience, they were, but they didn't have the burning desire that I had to make everything better. They believed basically in just going along with it um, and very, very small incremental improvements, which in my view wasn't the same thing at all. So it was a kind of they weren't my tribe. They absolutely weren't my tribe. And so I found myself um, friendless, really, because I could not call them my friends. And I certainly couldn't call the left my friends because they had renounced and denounced me. So I was left in a kind where of your no support, man's Where do your support
1: cr- structures come from? Well, the support,
0: the support structure... I didn't have a support structure. What I had... And what kept me going and what has kept me going throughout this whole process is the support of a huge number of people in the public. Because this all sounds terribly self-regarding, but you are trying to find out about me. Yeah, I know. I'm talking about you. Yeah, Um, But they would write to me in great number and I would see from what they wrote to me personally and what they were increasingly writing on the developing social media – I could see that we were all on the same page, them and me, and there were millions of them, and they all felt that they had views which were, A, not being represented at all by the entire mainstream. They were deserted not just by the left, but by the Conservative Party. And they felt also that they were being demonised, that their desire to have a community that they could call home, i.e. a nation, was being regarded as racist
1: and what when is this when 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 is this this is in this the... was
0: during the 90s so this is
1: this is as it were the beginnings of populism before we had a na- almost had a name for it Absolutely. is that right i mean
0: i would well i you know the word populism has become a boo word hasn't it i mean you know it, it wasn't really around then But I remember sitting through debates about the national curriculum where Mrs. Thatcher finally worked out something was going wrong with education, which took her a very long time. She got it completely wrong. She didn't understand what was going on at all. And she unleashed upon us the national curriculum, which she thought would put things right. But of course, the national curriculum was written by the very people who were doing the damage. And I remember sitting through debates, particularly by the history teachers and history professors who are the people who ultimately have the kind of custodianship, I would say, of the national narrative, because it's the teaching of history. And I remember, you know, to a man and woman, they agreed that the idea of education as the transmission of a culture could no longer hold because Western culture was innately exclusivist and therefore racist and colonialist. And you could no longer teach uh, British history and the history of British institutions uh, on the basis that it was associated entirely with bad things. It sort of started with the empire. Hello? There was nothing before the empire, and the empire was uniquely and awfully and incorrigibly irre- bad. And so you couldn't teach any of that. And Instead, you had to teach particularly black children. You had to teach black children to be proud of where they came from. So you taught British-born black children about slavery and Africa. And as a result, it seemed to me this was absolutely racist because you were treating black children as the other to use the left's favourite phrase, and you were ensuring that by not enabling them to know anything about the country in which they were citizens, they would not be able to take their part as equal citizens. They would always be on the outside. So that was going on then. And those people who said this is terrible were already being denounced as xenophobic uh, and racist and all the rest of it, including black people, including black people. They were being pushed aside. They were saying, we want our children to be taught what white children are taught. But of course, white children were no longer being taught these things. I remember the Macpherson report, uh, famously, uh, which denounced policing as being institutionally racist. That arose from the murder, the racist murder of a young black man in South London called Stephen Lawrence. And I remember at the time, or shortly after that, there was a report written by uh, one of the local councils, and it was a left wing council, and it was trying to explain. What it was about that society that had produced this, this terrible atmosphere in which this young, upstanding black boy got murdered simply because of the colour of his skin. And I remember it said it, it located the problem in the schools. And it had a phrase which ran something like White children haunt the multicultural corridors like ghosts. They have nothing to hang on to, they have no sense of what they are, no sense of community, no sense that what they are is in any way other than awful. And the black children, and by black I mean including Asian, are also ill-served because they are served up with a form of education which purports to give them what they are, but actually is so etiolated and so ignorant about their own cultures and so superficial and so trivializing that they end up knowing nothing about anything. <clears throat> so how do you what, what
1: I'm interested in in this is just to return it to you a little bit more. It's your strength of purpose and your your clarity of you know how you see things in the face of everybody telling you, that you're wrong. And i just like... I'm fascinated to know how you get that because I'm going to say this. <clears throat> um, you and I know each other quite well and there is a gap between the Melanie Phillips that uh, people see uh, in the public and think they understand and certainly the Melanie Phillips that I know and is my friend because I hate to say this to everybody on the radio but, Melanie, you're a pushy cat. <laughs> my,
0: you're a pushy cat. Oh,
1: Giles. And, but, but, but you when destroy
0: you, my reputation.
1: no. But when you talk... Nobody can hear, you know, that's not, that's not apparent to everybody. People don't know the sort of self-doubt and, the, and there's a gap between you as a I know as a self-doubting type of person and the, some would say stridency, I would say clarity, whatever you'd say, of, of the views that you have. It's, it's, it's a
0: fascinating thing to me, that is. I know. I can't ultimately explain it. All I can say is that I've always followed where the evidence leads, in my view. Um, I really think I'm not ideological. I've always just looked at what the evidence throws up at me and tried to form a conclusion. Now, in many cases, the evidence seems to me to be overwhelmingly thus. And therefore, my conclusion is thus. And until and unless somebody shows me that that is wrong, I remain fixed in my conclusion. But always wondering whether I've got it right. If everyone's, so many people... Uh, who know much more than I do about everything, are shouting at me, saying I've got it wrong, then I think I must have got it wrong. So
1: sometimes it keeps you up at night. Am I wrong?
0: Oh, sometimes. It keeps me up all the time. If you put your head so far above the parapet as I do, then the chances of it getting knocked off are so huge that you are terrified the whole time. So there's not a moment when I'm not constantly re-interrogating why I think X and going back to all my sources and looking at all the things that one does to try and tell one that one is on the right uh, wavelength. You compare it with first of all, you look at the evidence itself, you look at the reality uh, out out there, you compare it with that reality, you look at the internal logic. Quite a lot of these theories that are held so firmly by people, in my view, fall down on internal logic. And then you look at the arguments with those people about the internal logic, and then you look at their reaction and they run away from the logic. They don't answer the question. They, they circumvent it, or they come up with false logic again. And so you reach those sorts of conclusions. Um, so you look at all kinds of stuff to try to work out whether you're on the right lines. I do that all the time. But I come back and there are some some occasions where I've changed my view. Famously, I mean, I've changed my view about so much. Um, but, you know, the things where I sort of jump up and down, I think, the, I think what people find so difficult is because I get so sort of emotionally um, involved with the conclusion that I've reached. And that's because the conclusion I've reached in so many of these cases is not just that X is thus, but that the result of X being thus is that terrible things are being upheld, which are going to win against truth and justice, that people are going to become victims as a result of the opposite being held to be the truth. And consequently, it becomes more urgent uh, to persuade people that this is so. And that's probably why I get so bound up with it. And that's probably what people can hear as certainty. It's not certainty in the sense that my mind is kind of fixed and closed. On the contrary, I'm always listening carefully to the arguments against. But it's certainty on the basis that until and unless somebody comes up with a plausible reason why I should change my view, then the consequences of other people thinking the opposite are terrible. And I have to wake people up to that. I think that's probably what people are hearing. And that's Possibly a rather inadequate way of explaining this conundrum. So
1: you so you leave the Guardian, and I imagine that's because the, the sort of forces have just become overwhelming. Know, yeah, intolerable to try and maintain all of these. Mm. Uh, it took this a long internal time. internal Took a
0: very long time. Yeah. I mean, I I I left the Guardian for the Sunday Times in well, honestly, I I forget the dates, but I think it was somewhere around the late nineties, ninety eight, something like that.
1: Did you feel liberated when you? When you left The Guardian to start writing things that you felt you weren't able to write before?
0: I was kind of shell-shocked, really. Um, I was shell-shocked by the whole experience. I had to leave, and it was a terrible, terrible... I can't describe to you. It's was, it was like... This sounds melodramatic, but it's a bit like suddenly realising fairly late in life, i.e. in your mid-thirties, that the family you've loved has been abusing you all the time, and you haven't realised it until now. <clears throat> and then when you realise it, you have to go. You can't stay with them, but you still love them because they're your family and you can't really leave them. It was like that.
1: And is it still like that, a yes, bit? Yes, yeah.
0: it is. It That's is. And I can't explain, that. Sad thing I can't explain that. I can't explain that. I can't explain that because people yeah. say to me, well, How could you possibly even think about these people? They're so loathsome, so awful. I don't see that. I don't see that at all. I think they are people activated by really rather noble and sweet motives. They just got things they got it terribly wrong. wrong yeah. And that some of the motives aren't so sweet. And that is very painful as well. But, you know, they're people and we all make mistakes and we all get things wrong. And I got things, in my view, looking back, terribly wrong for a long time. Um, We're all the product of our background and our environment and what makes us is a complicated matter. But, you know, so anyway, I, I... I I don't feel I've really left them, and I I think the reason why they're so bitter towards me is that they don't feel they I've really left them either. Because if they felt I'd really left them, they wouldn't care. They wouldn't care for a moment.
1: Part of this is uh, what, what I hear. Some of this is sort of something about family. One of the things that you're increasingly aged for, and have been for a while, of course, is is your um, passionate commitment to Israel, <laughs> and. Uh, and, and you know, all things relating to, to mm-hmm. Israel. And that's another family, of course, to, to which, you know, your membership mm-hmm. is... Is, uh,
0: is, that, does that, is that right? Yes, but that's also a complicated story, to put it mildly. I mean, the way I was brought up, again, very typical of British Jewish families of the time. Um, Israel was uh, a foreign country and my family supported it in a vague kind of way as being necessary for other Jews, but not us, because we were among the most fortunate Jews in the world. We were British and there was no safer or more uh, congenial place for Jews than Britain. It would leave us alone. OK, there was always anti-Semitism. It was always on the fringe. And was, you didn't
1: experience any anti-Semitism bit, when you were a kid?
0: A bit, but yeah. not much. Nothing what? to write home about. I a, few, a few remarks. But, I mean, you know, that's how we always... That, that's how I understood Jews to be. I mean, there was a Jewish condition. You could never get rid of anti-Semitism. But as long as society in general decided it was a terrible thing, it was kept to the fringes. And as far as Israel itself was concerned, I mean, again, this is very personal, but my parents never flew anywhere. They had a, my father had a flying phobia um, and I had a flying phobia uh, for many years until I would say my late 30s, early 40s. I never flew anywhere. And um, that is quite a bar to go into Israel. So <laughs> <laughs> long, old boat <bike> ride. <laughs> until until the year two thousand, I'd never been to Israel and never wanted to go to Israel until the year two thousand. Wow! Um, but twenty years previously, because I had stuck up for Israel as a matter of simple justice um, in the Guardian, that was the first time I had been made to realise that you couldn't do that as a British Jew, uh, because as soon as you did that, you were not properly British. That was long before Jeremy Corbyn and all this row. I encountered that personally up front at The Guardian in 1982. Long story. Um, however, uh, it wasn't really my thing. I was, you know, involved with my family at home. I had two children. Uh, I had a difficult situation professionally because of all the things we've been des- describing at The Guardian. Uh, and then The Observer was part of the, became part of The Guardian group. Um I never really thought about it. And I went to the Sunday Times and then I went to the Daily Mail, another long story. And in, in the year 2000, my daughter um, decided to go to Israel in her gap year. Uh, she be, had decided to become a religious person and she wanted to go to a female yeshiva, uh, a female uh, Jewish religious seminary in Jerusalem for a year. And she went there in the year 2000, in August. And by coincidence, I was invited to a conference uh, quite near Jerusalem. And I thought, mm, I'll take the opportunity to go there and to see her. And I went there and we went there again as a family at the end of the year to see her. And it, she went in August 2000 and in October the Intifada broke out. And both times I went to Israel, to Jerusalem, to see her in that year. I, was
1: that the Intifada with Ariel that was kicked off by, uh, well, this is not supposed to be the causes of it, but it kicked Ariel Sharon wandering yes, around one. the uh, Temple Mount. That one. Yeah.
0: Um, and uh, as far as Jerusalem was concerned, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. I thought I, I just couldn't bear it because I, it, was all, it was wrapped up with a whole lot of personal stuff about religiosity. Jer- Jerusalem is a very, very religious place. I was very frightened by that. I thought it I, I, just, I just didn't like it. And then everything changed for me because of the Intifada. What had been lurking since 1982, that experience at the Guardian, came roaring out in the Intifada you had Israelis being blown to pieces in pizza parlours and in uh, cafes and in buses in Jerusalem and elsewhere. And the Israelis uh, finally had to deal with it. And that meant taking condign action in what's called the occupied territories. And as a result, what came out of the woodwork very fast, immediately, in Britain, was that Israel was full of Nazis, that Israel was a Nazi state, and that it was slaughtering Palestinians. And it was presented as the aggressor. And again, I thought as a simple matter of justice and reality, I mean, what the hell's going on here? And I spoke. The first time, I think, in public, I spoke about Israel. And immediately, immediately, I was pigeonholed, no longer as the extreme right-wing fascist Nazi renegade from The Guardian, but as a Jew. And as a warmongering right-wing Jew. I've been to Israel twice to see my daughter. Didn't like it. And so when that happened, I kind of, I, I doubled down and I started to read. I started to read Jewish history and Middle East history. And I realized a number of things. I realized that I was incredibly ignorant about Judaism, incredibly ignorant about Jewish history and about Middle Eastern history. And that things I'd assumed to be the case were not the case. And that things I'd assumed to be an extreme right-wing position in support of Israel was actually just the truth, and that was a shattering realization. And then I read about the British in Palestine, in Mandate Palestine, and what I read there convinced me that what we were living through, this never-ending war in the Middle East, is Britain's fault. It's the direct result of Britain having sided with those wishing to exterminate not just the Jewish presence in Israel, but Jewish history in the land of Israel. And once I realized that, once I came to that conclusion, my entire perspective changed. And my perspective changed towards religiosity as well, for a number of reasons, both personal and professional and ideological, partly because of what was going on around me in Britain, the position I was being put into. I mean, I was accused of dual loyalty to my face on TV. I could hear it the whole time. I went to an, a, an economist-run debate where it was said, British Jews have now to make a, a choice. If they support Israel, they're no longer British. They can no longer be regarded as loyal. Excuse me? About what cause, people, institution or country is that said about anyone else?
1: I mean, it's a bit like, it's a bit like Roman Catholics for a while were, said, if you are loyal to the Pope, then you can't be loyal to this country. That's the nearest equivalent, isn't it? You know, but that was, that was a That's long time true,
0: ago. That's true, but Jews have always been accused of being disloyal. This goes back to, you know, thousands, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Anyway, uh, this all changed my view about everything, really everything. It changed my view about being a British Jew. Um, And I came to the conclusion that I, very fast, that I no longer felt safe here. I don't mean physically safe. I mean psychically safe. Uh, I just thought, if I'm here on condition that my loyalty to Britain is conditional upon my renouncing Israel, and renouncing what I consider to be essential truths about Middle East history and today, then I can't be this. I can't be this anymore. Um, And so uh, I now spend a very great deal of my time in Israel. And I regard myself as now between two worlds. Um, I still remain absolutely committed to Britain. I believe that Britain has given the world a unique set of values to do with tolerance and fairness and justice and freedom. And I believe those are unique to Britain. And I believe in Britain as uh, a country whose values have shaped me. They've shaped my character. I am British. I don't just mean I'm a British citizen. I mean my personality is very British. At the same time, I am now very well aware of the terrible history that Britain has had towards the Jewish people going back to the Middle Ages where they burned Jews alive and threw them out. And that is part and parcel also of Britain. I am still invested in Britain because I believe in its values, its unique values, and I'm desperately concerned about its future. Um, And I'm desperately concerned that it will no longer have a future as Britain, as a community governed by those values. At the same time, I feel safer in Israel, where Jews are not on their knees, where however people may disagree with my views, and believe me, they would disagree with my views if, if they knew them, because... You know, in Israel, um, everyone fights. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But no one will ever make me feel I'm there on condition. Nobody will ever make me feel I'm not entitled to be there. And that's very important to me. Um, And there are other reasons why... I, you know, like the, being there.
1: Is there a is there a religious component of of this? Um... Well, I suppose
0: there is. I mean, I thought you might ask me about. Religion. I'm sorry,
1: it's just you know, it's <gasps> inevitable. I was just going <laughs> to.
0: Uh, I find this very difficult. I mean, I've been told for years that I have a religious outlook, and for years I always thought that that was ridiculous because you know, when asked, going back many years, you know, you know, do you believe in God? I would say, well, I'm not really sure. <laughs> yeah, Pathetic, yeah, but yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I still think that. I'm not really sure. But I have come to the view that the alternative is preposterous, that the idea that religion is preposterous, that idea is proposed by people whose own view of the origin of everything is completely preposterous. And I've been drawn much more to, you know, the overall Jewish story. I'm I'm much more observant than I was, much, much more observant than I was. Um, I mean, I
1: can see why you, I can see why, you know, people would be resistant to having a conversation with this because, of course, if people get to know you as religious, it's an easy way of dismissing you. It's, oh, it's, a, it's absolutely. a terribly easy way of, like, dismissing who you are and absolutely. What, what you believe. So absolutely. Yeah, I completely understand why. But nonetheless, some of these things, some of these sort of core things do end up being the things that motivate what it is that we believe and stand for and they, they shape you in ways that are but it's not just that I'm. It's
0: not just that I'm concerned about how people would view me, although that is a concern. I. I admit that, but that's not really the concern. The concern is that I myself believe it's absurd to believe. <laughs> and yet uh, I'm, I'm drawn to it. So, you know, I'm up the creek, really, you, you might say. I, I mean, I think, I think the polite way of talking about this, of, of describing this is you're on a journey. Um, and I probably am. Um, if I certainly am, uh, quite where the journey is going to take me, I do not know. But I find much more now to identify with in Orthodox Judaism than I would ever have believed possible. And I find that those who have put religion in general and the Hebrew Bible in particular into a box marked obscurantism, illogicality, irrationality, uh, the extinction of freedom have got it completely wrong. Because all the things that secular people think uh, they believe in uh, and that they think Arose fully formed in their brains through genetic chance. All these values to do with justice and compassion and conscience and all that, that that sort of is a sort of genetic component of being a secular person. Those things are uniquely in the Hebrew Bible, uniquely. And without them, we're nothing. And I've come to believe that very firmly. Now, does that make me a religious person? Well, in Jewish terms, yes, it does. Because, as you know, Judaism is not like Christianity. And, you know, uh, people who view religion through a Christian lens think if you don't actually believe in God and believe in heaven and hell, you're not a religious person. Well, Jews don't think like that. It's all to do with doing. Um, and it's a, it's a very different way of looking at religion. And I do appreciate that. But nevertheless, I'm kind of hung up also on the way of thinking that says, well, you know, ultimately, it's all very well. Judaism as a religion of doing, not believing. But, but, but basically, it is a matter of belief, basically. And if you don't believe, then what's it all about? And I get that's why I, I kind of go, uh, yeah, well, I'll come back to you on that in kind of a <laughs> few decades' time when I thought this through more.
1: <laughs> Would your mum and dad... Uh, who, you know, who had that three times a year Mm. type of Judaism, look at you now, and, you know, with your more observant position, would they be sort of, like, surprised by that?
0: I often think about this. um, I think they simply wouldn't understand, ultimately. They would have tried very hard to understand. They would understand a bit of it. They'd understand a bit of it. But... I think my father in particular would have been utterly resistant. My mother would probably have gone along with it a bit because my mother, I think both were, both were kind of religious people in an unthinking kind of way. What I, I say by that, I mean, you know, I, I say they were three times a year Jews, but, you know, I remember as a very, very small child, my mother every night said the Shema with me. The Shema is the defining mm. prayer of Judaism. Mm. Every night. Every night. Every night. I remember that. Shema is a. That's not a small thing. That's not a small thing. She was a religious person. They, they weren't observant. The Shema
1: is, is uh, listen up, Israel, God is one and God is great, sort of thing. It's a defining yeah.
0: creed yeah. prayer. Yeah. Um, it's the prayer you say when you're dying. So I think, and both of them were, were like that. Um, my father, I mean, my, but, but when my father died, I was already on this political journey. He did not understand this and it caused me a great deal of pain. Well, you
1: think... You've been incredibly open and uh, and honest. Um, when, when I when I uh, was thinking about sitting down with you and talking about, about this, I thought to myself, I don't think Melly's going to be that easy <laughs> to talk to because I think it's going to be because um, because you're very articulate and, and often quite well defended. But you've been very open about uh, about all these things, and I and I think uh, people listening to this will understand you a lot better from hearing it. Thank you well, for talking to us. It's
0: I'm only open with somebody who is. So so sympathetic and open-minded himself so thank you. <laughs> That's very nice. Thank you Melanie Phillips.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. And if you've enjoyed the series, please do rate and review it. We're taking a short break for now, but we'll be back soon with a new lineup of great guests for another series of soul-bearing. Make sure you've subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to the podcast, so don't miss out. Thanks again for tuning in, and in the meantime, check out the website unheard.com.